Welcome to the Debutiful Podcast Feed. This is the first taste reading series where each week I invite an author to read from their new book and answer a few short questions. You can find Debutiful on the internet at debutiful.net and on all social media at Debutiful. Today's guest is a Japanese Taiwanese Okinawan American writer whose work has been featured in the New York Times, Catapult, and Electric Literature, among other publications. She has received fellowships and support from the National Endowment for Arts, Japan-U.S. Friendship Commission, Yadao, Sustainable Arts Foundation, Sawani's Writer Conference, and elsewhere. She has received her MFA in nonfiction from Pennsylvania State University and currently lives in Chicago. Her debut speculative memoir, The Night Parade, is out now. Please welcome Jamie Nakamura Lynn. Hey, Jamie. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Yeah, we've started to get some snow here in Chicago. And last week it was like 70, 80 degrees. So, you know, it's really, it's truly Chicago weather. So. Yes, yeah, same yeah. here in Denver. It was hot. I was complaining. And then it's like <laughs> 22 degrees and we got like eight inches of snow. It's melting now because that's Denver for you. But, yeah. <laughs> um, Chicago, before we even get to your book, mm-hmm. I just went back to Chicago for the first time since I was like a broke 22 year old and mm-hmm. loved it. It is a fabulous city. It's way better when you don't have like $5 to spend every day. <laughs> yeah, I live to be to my Chicago audience. I do live in the suburbs right now. I moved out to the suburbs <laughs> because people from Chicago are very careful to distinguish between city and suburb folks. So right now yes. I am in the suburbs, but I lived there for a lot of my twenties and yeah, grew up in the area as well. A great yeah. time. Um, awesome. And we could talk about Chicago all day, but we'll <laughs> talk about your book, The Night Parade, which is subtitled A Speculative Memoir. Tell readers a little bit about what your book is. So my book uses yokai and other Japanese, Taiwanese, and Okinawan monsters and spirits and ghosts and creatures of legend um, as a way to talk about my bipolar disorder and my father's death um, and a lot of other intergenerational things like Japanese-American incarceration and um, a miscarriage and parenting. But basically the center of the book is how do we learn to live with the things that haunt us? And it's illustrated in full color by my sister, Corey Nakamura Lynn. Um, so it's been great to be able to collaborate with her. So the book also kind of um, functions as a bestiary or an encyclopedia because each chapter opens with a illustration of um, the the yokai or creature we're talking about Um, and a little blurb explaining a little bit about that creature as well. Yeah, your book blew me away. It was so (laughs) like moving and honest and informative and unlike anything I had really ever read. And I cannot wait to take a deep dive with you on it. Mm -hmm. Um, What part of the night parade will you be reading for us today? I'll be reading from the chapter um, called The Offing. Um, It's the fifth chapter in the book. So it takes place when I'm a teenager. So I'll be reading from that. Terrific. Take it away. And I will be back to ask many questions. Okay. This is from The Offing. One. Long ago, in the year of our Lord, 2006, in the middle of a warmer than average spring in Chicago, time stops. It stops the way a train stops when an animal runs onto the tracks, a screeching break. For most people on the planet, outside the zone of influence, this time stoppage has no effect. But those near a certain house in a certain suburb of Chicago, closer to the perimeter, notice strange effects. One woman in a particular cul-de-sac holds her screaming baby for two hours, 
only to look at the clock and see only a minute has passed. One mother sparrow lays her eggs in a nest in a column of a particular house, only to discover upon her return that she has not yet laid them. In other words, the only ones who notice the shift in time are the people in close proximity to our 17-year-old heroine, who at this very moment is refusing to leave her bed. The audience is invited to gaze upon this lump, currently hiding underneath a pink Hello Kitty comforter. Every few minutes, when she flips back the covers for air, you can see her ratty hair, dank t-shirt and gym shorts. Every morning, bed. Every afternoon, bed. Every time her parents peek in, bed. It has been days. The audience tuts. The question on everyone's lips, what is she doing? Or rather, why isn't she doing anything? There is only our heroine lying in bed and all the people around pushing and pushing and pushing, getting nowhere. The fishing villages of Japan knew what to do with a beached whale, kill it and eat it. Though, as with all whaling, you had to be careful. Think of karma. Think of what goes around comes around. Think of the village off the coast of the Shimane Peninsula who learned their lesson the hard way. One night, the young fishermen saw something glowing off their coast, a shimmer in the offing. Here, the offing refers to the far distant part of the sea as viewed from shore. Here, it does not refer to the only context the heroine knows, the colloquial term offing yourself. As it swam closer, the fishermen saw it was a baleen whale. They readied their spears, steadied their arms, and threw. Yet none of their spears hit flesh. When the whale swam nearer, they saw what the mist and shadow had occluded, that this was no whale at all. Instead, it was an enormous skeleton. Without its fin flesh, the phalanges skimming through the waves looked like the bones of a human hand. Bakikujira, one man whispered. Ghost whale. Skeleton whale. The fisherman fled toward shore. Two, the longer our heroine stays in bed, the more upset her parents become. She can hear it in her mother's voice, carrying, carrying through the front door from down the hall. Of course, this is happening to her, her mother says to her father. Of course she's crashing. And okay, her mother is right, because while neither the heroine nor her mother think the word mania, in the past semester, she's made a whole new group of friends and her first boyfriend and all her weekends have been spent at concerts. And okay, she's been staying up until three or four every morning because she cannot sleep and because she cannot stop instant messaging the boy she loves, a fellow insomnia who, unfortunately, is not the boy she's dating. It is so easy for our heroine to fall in love with a disembodied wall of text. What are these boys but archives? And she has always loved an archive. This is what she knows how to love, banter, and a boy without a body. These boys send her stories line by line, and when there is a pause, she fills it in. But nothing ever comes of it. And isn't that the point, kind of? To dine solely on her own longing, to nurture this feeling that belongs to her alone, to build the shape she wants out of a shadow of a skeleton. But these things aren't the sole reasons for time stopping. This whole spring, she has felt she cannot keep up. Her brain, once her staunchest ally, is mushing. Her brain is claggy and her body ever more distant. Help me, God, she writes in her journal all that spring. Help me, pills, she says. When you serve two masters, your list of desires always dangles on the tip of your tongue, leaving you, leaving you open-mouthed like a humpback on a sandbar, uvula flop, flopping, kathunk, kathunk. 
In the village, word quickly spread of the Baki Kujira. A whale is sacred, the elders said. A whale can seek vengeance on the village that hunted it. They told their young men of a story of another village that had been beset by bad luck after they hunted a mother whale and her calf. When the small misfortunes evolved into a deadly pandemic, the village could deny it no more. This was the curse of the mother whale they killed. Upon hearing their elders tell this tale, the fishermen who'd seen the Bakikujira paled. Now they knew what was coming for them, sickness and death. Look, it's not a whale, it's a skeleton. Look, it's not a whale, it's a ghost. Look, it's not a whale, it's the future calling, here to avenge the past. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading. Um, I want to start with your writing background. I, um, you received an MFA in nonfiction from Penn State. Um, was writing something that was always a part of your life, though? Yes. Ever since I was really little, I always really loved telling stories. I would bounce a ball around my house and just tell stories to myself from the time I was a really little kid. And um, I started journaling pretty regularly when I was very young, first as part of school assignments. And then when I was around nine, obsessed with Harriet the Spy, I started keeping like spy notebooks, which turned into a very dedicated writing practice. And I think because um, of my bipolar disorder, from the time I was young, writing was, a re was really a way to help me process what was happening to me and um, what was happening to the world around me that I didn't really understand. And so I always really loved writing and knew I wanted to be a writer from the time I was young. But I kind of deviated from that path when I was older because I thought, oh, writing's not like a, a career. It's mm -hmm. not a thing you can do. And my parents never told me that or anything. They were very supportive of my creativity. But I think like in high school, I was like, oh, like I should study journalism. because That's a way to do like writing. But I took a journalism class in high school and I hated it. I tried to be an English major in college and also hated it. Um, and I ended up doing psychology because of my bipolar and because I was really curious about people. And I think psychology and writing have a lot of overlaps and then it does have this kind of like deep interest in people. Um, but when I was a senior in college, my schedule didn't fit this psych class I had to take. So I thought maybe I'll take this um, nonfiction writing class. And by luck of the draw, I had to turn in my piece first and I turned in my essay and my professor was like, have you ever thought about going to grad school? And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Yes, I'd yeah. love to apply for grad school. So we like very haphazardly threw my um, like package together. Sure. Um, so I went to my MFA right after college. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's funny you brought up the idea of journalism because one of my questions was like, how do you find creative nonfiction? How do you decide to get an MFA in fiction? Because I think most people think, oh, I'll just be a journalist. I'll go <laughs> write investigative pieces. I think I really love like the thinking aspect of creative nonfiction or of the essay. I think of my mm -hmm. book also, you know, it's, it's listed as a speculative memoir, which it is. But I also think of it as like a book length essay. Um, and I'm really interested in thinking about thinking, which in journalism is is more of a detrimental thing. That was the stuff that my, you know, my teacher would be like, take this out. And that was the part I was really dedicated to. So I think that's what drew me to that. For sure. And, and then you have written wide and far electric lit pieces in the time, New York Times. 
what is your writing practice like? I know your bio now says you write freelance full time, but I'm curious, like the actual mechanics of a Jamie writing session. So I write longhand almost all the time because um, blank documents freak me out. And so I am very specific about like this huge notebook I have with very heavy paper. And I'm very specific about the the pen I have. Um, And I wrote almost everything longhand. I use a lot of post-it notes that I keep in my notebooks and move around so that I don't feel like I'm stuck to keeping this note in a specific place. But sometimes even when like a blank page seems too overwhelming, I'm like, okay, just write something on a post-it note. Um, so I have to look at everything I write very um, viscerally. Mm. So I think I use a lot of like cutting. Wow. My editing process is like printing stuff out and cutting it up and moving it around with scissors and glue and pasting it on huge pieces of paper. Um, So I really struggle to see what's not right before my eyes. Um, And I think that's part of my ADHD. So I really need to have like everything laid out on the floor in front of me. If it's just in a document I'm scrolling through, it's very hard for me to envision what exists beyond the, the screen. Yeah. Are you the type of person who, because of ADHD and mm-hmm. just neurodivergency, right? Uh, are you writing multiple things or are you able to do that? Yes. Or do you have, okay. Yeah. My only way of really writing is if I'm procrastinating on something else, Sure. Yeah. you know, so like I always work on the thing that's not the most pressing thing. Like if I have a deadline on one thing, I'll want to write the thing that's not the deadline. So I get stuff done by having like multiple pressing things. And then I can kind of like work on the thing that's not immediate. And then hopefully by shuffling all of that, all my deadlines can get in. (laughs) Yeah. And and you have written a lot of personal essays or Mm -hmm. essays that are personal. Ah, Whatever. Um, Did did you always feel comfortable writing about yourself, writing about bipolar, writing about family? Was that something you had to get like a hump you had to get over? I think so, because I think by the time I was starting to write and publish stuff, I had been journaling and writing this type of thing for so long um and by that time which was like in grad school that I started publishing them my family and I had gone through um this whole process of me being hospitalized and Mm. everything and we had it was very much out in the air everyone knew that I was bipolar because I had been very publicly like you know had to leave school and had to drop out of different stuff and was hospitalized and things like that so um Luckily, my family and my friends are all very supportive about me airing our dirty laundry in front of everybody. Yeah. What are responses like from pieces or or how do you, what's the permission process like? Like, I think people who don't write nonfiction about their personal lives don't really understand, even like I don't understand how it all like works and wh- when you decide to change things, when you can't change things. Mm-hmm. Well, like for my book, I changed all the names of people who I had been in different, you know, like groups or like in um, institutions with and like changed their identifying details because I didn't want to, you know, for privacy sake and things like that. Um, Most of the people in my life are all have their same names and everything, except like my daughter just because she's young and for privacy. Yeah, I think for me, that isn't one of the bigger things that I struggle with is this feeling of like, angst or you know like worry about getting it out and that's a privilege because I feel you know my family 
has always been really supportive in that way. Luckily, yeah, terrific. Yeah, and and with this book, um, you mentioned it is sort of one long essay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very long essay to edit. Yes. Talk about. I'm curious about the the format of mm-hmm. it and how you decide to incorporate your sister's art and how mm-hmm. you decided like what chapters were what chapters um how easy was that for you it was very difficult um the idea of working with my sister was easy because yeah. we've collaborated on a lot of stuff in high school we would do zines together and she cool. would draw the little cover and I would do the text um and we've collaborated on other projects in the past so when I had putting my was putting my book proposal together, I'd asked my agent, like, do you think this is something publishers would potentially be interested in? And so we put illustrations in the book proposal and cool. thankfully they were. Um, but in terms of structure, structure I feel has been always one of the hardest parts for me to yeah. find that that's fine. And because my work travels all over the place in both time and space, the yokai, these creatures really had to be the backbone. That had to be like the hot center that we kept circling back to because I feel like in earlier versions of my essays, readers would get confused because we're kind of like slipping all over the place. There's not like a foothold. And so the yokai really had to be the foothold. Um, And I think it wasn't until I decided very late in the game um, in figuring out my book proposal to follow the Kisho Tenketsu structure, which is the Japanese um, four part structure that's based on Chinese poetry, um, that things felt like they kind of more fell into place where I could see kind of the spine of the book coming together and seeing like what the shape could potentially be. Um, And so the chapter orders all actually stayed in the same process from the time I sold my book in February, 2021 to, to when I finished it. But each chapter itself went through so many iterations and drafts it wasn't designed to be like a speculative memoir. I, mm-hmm. It was originally going to be like much more direct first person, things like that. And it was only when I kept pushing up against these things, of feeling like I can't do it. I can't do it. I have to try something else. Cause I tried to write this six different ways and each way is not working that I had to kind of like break something and do it a different way. Cause it just wasn't working. Yeah, what was the response like from people who didn't necessarily understand like that background and that like folklore? Um, Did people get it right away? I think you mean in terms of publishing or in terms, yeah, 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 that like yeah, yeah. I think people were very interested in it. Um, I think you know it. It isn't like people grew up knowing the same stories or had that same type of like cultural context Mm -hmm. that people in my life have. Um, But I think people were very interested in what I was trying to do and were very enthusiastic about it. Um, And I really love my editor. I feel like she pushed me in so many different ways. And I think one of the things that she told me when I was like so frustrated with how I couldn't write, I was just really struggling to write certain chapters was she told me that, um, lean into the weird reality isn't your strong suit. And I feel like that really felt like it like gave me permission to do all these things that I never felt like I could do before. So I feel like she really got what I was trying to do and pushed me further than I would have been able to push myself in trying to make these legends and a folklore, not just like a metaphor, but concrete in the world of the book. Yeah. 
Yeah, like I said, I um I just was blown away by this. I didn't I didn't know what to expect. It came to me, it had the speculative memoir, and I was like, okay, I'm let's buckle in. And it's just like a beautiful journey, and you're so open and honest about everything. And I just want to commend you for how how well connected I felt with you. No, thank you. Do you feel do you think about the reader when you're writing? I know it's a silly question, but like I I probably think about the reader much less than other writers or that I probably should. Um, Mm. I think it's very hard for me to get into other heads that are not my own head. (laughs) It's very hard for me to even inhabit my own head. (laughs) So um, I think I primarily think of myself, (laughs) which sounds like a selfish thing to say, um, but trying to be able to really get it to like, you know, what would have, what really expresses what I'm trying to say right now, or makes me feel like I'm really, like I really cracked it or did something. And I feel like when I feel like I, I've cracked it, it's not that I've arrived at like an answer, but I've arrived at the right question. But I think a lot of my process is trying to feel like I'm finding the right question. And I think often of like my younger self and what I would have liked to read. Um, in one of the essays, I was really struggling to write about um, like the legacy of Japanese incarceration and my grandfather's time there. And I really felt like, oh, I really want to do this community justice, my community justice, and write about it in a way um, that can kind of tie in all these different things and honor what happened to us while also being able to just, I was just trying to do all these different things in like one essay. And it was like, so it became so heavy for me. Um, And I think my mom was really helpful in talking me down of being like, you do not have to do all these things. And I think that's like the scarcity mindset too, of being like, oh, I have to do it instead of this idea of like abundance. Um, so in that sense, I think what really made me be able to direct it is I imagine writing it to my cousin, like as a letter being like, how do I want to write this out? And so I feel like in that version, it was very specific and other chapters were written like in direct address in original versions. So that helped me think of like one very specific reader like to my father or, or things yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I, I, I remember having a conversation with a, a f- someone in a book club, a friend, a, a colleague, I don't know what to, how to describe them, but I was based, I said something about how like this book wasn't written for me, but I, you know, I could, could not this book, not your book, just, mm-hmm. book, you know? <laughs> and they're like, what? And he's like, well, all books are written for everyone. I was like, yeah, sure. But not, not really, you know, like certain <laughs> books are written for a very distinct mm-hmm. person and a type of a demographic or whoever, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean like everyone can't connect with it. Mm-hmm. And like I said, yeah, like your book, it just, uh, it opened up my eyes to like reflect on myself in a lot of ways too, even though I, you know, I don't, don't have, um, the same historical background as mm-hmm. your family, but anyway, that's just me telling you Thank how much you. I love your book. I, yeah, I really appreciate hearing it because I, I really like hearing about how different people can connect with different aspects of it. Yeah. And that, and that's what's beautiful. Um, speaking of connecting with things, you mentioned Harriet the Spy uh, <laughs> as just like your journal, but what were your like jams as like a kid? Like I love Babysitter's Club, Goosebumps, <laughs> uh, Animorphs. Those were like my things. I love those like long serialized uh, 
books but what were you enjoying as a kid I really loved books where like it was always like a girl who often like really got in trouble oftentimes um <laughs> like Ramona like all those Ramona books I was obsessed with those Harry the Spy I was really into um like when I was younger um the little house books were very formative when I was young and like my sister Corey the illustrator and I would always play like Laura and Mary um and things like that so I think yeah very drawn to like funky girls um and who would maybe do things that I wouldn't dare to do in my own life um and I feel like my mom really tried to like give us like a diverse reading list and especially like Asian American authors and stuff but I think at the time a lot of what was being put out was very like historical focused or like lesson focused and I just wanted like something like fun and funny and that was more few and far between then um so I was really drawn to like Harry the spy as yeah, characters. Sure. Yeah. Were you, was there a time when you were seeking books that helped explain what you were going through? Did you remember seeing yourself in books at, at a certain point? I mean, I remember in, in high school, I read so many books like um, hunger, like all those, you know, all those like are like wasted or um, girl interrupted, mm-hmm. like all mm-hmm. those type of books. Um, but again, all of those, those, you know, addiction memoirs or mental illness memoirs and stuff very much were written by white women at the time. Yes. That was like what was coming out. Um, and I don't know, I felt like it, it followed a very specific type of trajectory. Um, so I devoured them. I read them. I read everything that the library had. And I think they did help in some way to be like, oh, I'm not the only one like going through this. And this is these this is what other people have gone through and like survived. But I did feel like the range was very limited. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, I could see that. I think I, for a long time publishing, and it still is, obviously we haven't mm-hmm. solved this problem. It was very like white driven, very, mm-hmm. very upper middle class. Those mm-hmm. are the stories that have been told for such a long time. Mm-hmm. But uh, are there now books that have like inspired you that, that you, not inspire necessarily, but books that now you feel have a better representation, a better connection with? I really love books that do really interesting things with form. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes I feel like people just read something or publish something just because of like the content of the story, but I'm always very interested in craft, in the craft of how something is shaped. So I really love when things have both of those together. So like um, Heartberries by um, Therese Marie Milholt. And it's also talking about her experiences with bipolar too, but also a lot of other things and um, talking a lot about how her indigenous identity um, and experiences as a mother tie in all together. Um, and formally, I was so intrigued by how how she wrote that book. Um, so I'm just so interested in the craft of how people craft these things. Um, because I think for me, my neurodivergence really shapes how I write, not just only in like how I do my writing practice, but in the syntax, in the style um, and things like that. So I'm, I'm always interested to see how that comes out in other people's work. Yeah, I I love uh, like the memoirs I enjoy or the nonfiction, mm-hmm. the the story needs like usually does grab mm-hmm. me in some way, but the ones that really I think about longer and longer are the mm-hmm. ones that 
do something more and so, or something different. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like your book has been compared to in the dream house, mm-hmm. uh, which, yeah, like that's another one where I, I understand everything Carmen's writing about, but how she's writing about it. I'm just yeah. like, I, don't, I don't understand how she's writing. Yeah. About it. It's blowing my mind. Yeah. yeah. Formal inventiveness is always so intriguing to me. Yeah. What other writers are doing things that you're interested in, regardless of like genre? Mm-hmm. Alyssa Washuda, who wrote White Magic. I really love the different ways that she plays with things in, in her book. I'm really interested in things that do different things with form. And I'm also really interested in essay collections that have some type of illustrated or visual element. So like um, Bright Archive by Sarah Miner, Hmm. like in the middle, there's this big piece that you won't be able to see on the podcast, of course, but there's just like fold out visual map. Yeah. That just kind of looks like it's all these different boxes aligned together, kind of like quilt strips. Um, and I think there is more interest now in being able to have visual elements, um, like Melissa Phoebos' work had like illustrations and parts of it um, in the beginning of chapters. So I think it's becoming maybe more common or people are becoming open to it. And that was one of the things that made me think when I was putting my own book proposal together, like, oh, maybe, maybe people, maybe publishers would take this um, or like the book. Dearest and Thurin, um, I, by Akwaki Amezi, um, not sure if I'm pronouncing that last name correct, um, but I really loved how each one was like written in a letter. So it's like, it is like a oh. memoir, but each one is a, a direct address to a specific person. Um, so just these different ways of seeing memoirs and essays that they're not bound by these confines that we used to, like confines that we usually maybe saw before. Um, yeah. Thank you so much to Jamie for joining the Beautiful First Taste Reading Series to read from her debut memoir, The Night Parade, which is out now. You can find her on the internet at jamienakamuralin.com, on Twitter at jamienlin, and on Instagram at jamie underscore lin. You can find Day Beautiful at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. And as always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful. And you're all beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>